The Triathlon Show 365. Hey, what's up everybody and welcome back to another episode of That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host Michael and on today's episode I interview Andy Blow, founder of Precision Fuel and Hydration. Andy joins us to discuss the exact numbers of carbohydrate, fluid and sodium intake that Fenella Langridge, Sarah Crowley, Leon Chevalier, all top 10 in Kona had in uh, the Ironman World Championships and also the numbers that Emma Pallant-Brown who was third in the 7.3 World Championships in St. George used in two very different races uh, especially in terms of environmental conditions with Kona obviously being hot and humid and St. George being extremely cool and dry uh, this year precision fuel and hydration is one of the sponsors for this episode i'll keep this one short as we do have andy on for the entire episode but just a quick shout out uh, to their black friday promo that is coming up where there will be 20 percent off everything in store uh, from thursday the 24th of november until uh, midnight on cyber monday there's no code required the discount is automatically applied site-wide on precision fuel and, and hydration.com and thank you to roca roca produce exceptional quality triathlon wetsuits trisuits swimskins goggles performance sunglasses and prescription eyeglasses and sunglasses if you want to go faster in the water look to roca's range of wetsuits from the entry level to the top of the line wetsuits all of them come with arms of technology and exceptional quality and comfort in the water roca's dry suits work perfectly together with the wetsuits as they too come with arms of technology to really maximize your shoulder mobility for the swim and on the bike and run they're optimized for aerodynamic aerodynamics and comfort roca's range of sunglasses and prescription glasses is also packed with innovation with patented technologies such as the Geeko anti-slip technology. They are ultra light and have excellent optical properties. Visit roca.com forward slash TTS for 20% off your order. Now without any further ado, here's my interview with Andy Blow. Welcome back to the Triathlon Show, Andy. How are you doing? I'm good, Michael. How are you? Yeah, um, I'm good. Thank you. Uh, it's uh, been a while since we uh, last chatted, but uh, there's been a lot of big racing going on and you have some uh, good uh, and interesting case studies and, and other data observations from the big races that we've had recently with Kona and 7.3 Worlds in uh, St. George. So uh, let's uh, chat about that. First of all, um, can you just run run through the list of athletes you had in in Kona that that you're working with and that use your product and that you have kind of compiled data from? Yeah, we we were lucky enough to actually compile eleven case studies in total from athletes racing in Kona, and that was a big focus of what we wanted to do this year because we felt that you know Kona is such a such a big race and such a unique race from a hydration, especially about a hydration and fueling standpoint. It was a big goal of ours to, to crunch the numbers on a lot of athletes. So we focused on working with some of the pro athletes that we, that, that are kind of ambassadors for the brand. So people like Leon Chevalier, Fenella Langridge, Sarah Crowley, all who actually, you know, basically had really, really good races all in the top 10. I mean, there were, individual circumstances i think sarah felt like her race she got a drafting penalty and felt like her race wasn't anywhere near perfect but from our perspective if we step back and say like to get case studies from three athletes who all finished in the top 10 was amazing um we've also got a couple of um, age group winners age group and and others other top age group athletes who who did well in the mix there so we've got we did feel like as a as a group we gained a lot of insight both into what how those individuals executed um, fueling and hydration in Kona but also big learnings from the from the group overall because we can compare it to data we've got other Ironman races and help answer athletes questions about how you might adapt your fueling and hydration strategy for those harsh conditions in Kona. Yeah, so maybe let's start with that. Uh, the group level learnings. Uh, how does uh, the fueling and hydration in Kona compare to a more, let's say, standard Ironman race? Well, I think the the first thing to say is that people, as you'd expect, on the hydration side especially, take a lot more that heat and humidity. I mean, I haven't been to Kona since two thousand and four when I raced there myself, and I went back this year to actually be there to see the races live and even as a spectator you know running around trying to get from place to place it reminded me just how ridiculous the heat and humidity is and i was you know your shirt is your t-shirt is like sticking to you all day long and sweats 
in your eyes the whole time. So we know that fluid loss is massive. And in the in the group, what we saw with um, with fluids is that although there was there was a there was a difference, we saw some of the highest fluid intakes we've seen yet in Ironman competition. The highest one was actually worked out an average of about one point five liters per hour throughout the duration of the event um and we saw um that was one of the age group athletes um we also saw leon who is one of the pros taking in 1.3 nearly 1.4 liters per hour overall and so it kind of started to push the envelope up for us as to what really high fluid volumes look like in these sort of events Mm. And this is something we have talked about in the past about the absorption of of fluid, and uh, well, obviously the uh, sodium content of the fluid and versus the blood plays a part in that. But but we have also talked about maybe there is a, a certain limit to how much you can absorb. But but would you say that these amounts close to up to one one and a half liters an hour that is still beneficial or is is it just like is there a chance that some of that could be just unnecessary fluid that is not getting absorbed yeah that's it is a really good question i would say in the case of if we drill into leon's one specifically 1.3 liters now which is which is high it's not above what we've seen before massively above but it's right at the upper end the the interesting fact was i don't i i'll have to double check this i certainly don't think he peed on the bike i don't think he maybe peed for the whole race so hmm. In the in the one sense, you'd expect if you were if you were putting in a big fluid overload that you would you would see people needing to pee or feeling uncomfortable. Uh, I think that um, Leon, so he he did suffer some a little bit of GI discomfort. He rated his, but he still rated his GI comfort for the races like overall as eight out of ten. Um, there was a little bit of eight um, out of ten being a positive. Sorry, so yeah. 10 out of 10 being like I had no trouble all day I mean he mentioned some some issues some issues on the on the bike in terms of I think he was trying to hit some some fairly high fluid numbers on the bike and he felt that he you know he felt that he was pushing those limits but he didn't sort of go over them um yeah it was and for us that was interesting because the way we formulated the plan with we know that leon is a pretty heavy sweater we know that he's a pretty salty sweater as well so getting in a reasonable volume of of fluid and sodium is always important for him in the heat but what we discussed pre-race was that he'd got he uses concentrated bottles of of of, um, carbs and electrolytes to to get those kind of totals in and then the idea was to supplement with as much or as little additional water as he felt like he needed to take. So he was being quite responsive to his needs and he clearly, you know, his decision-making on the day was that he needed a lot of fluid. And I, I haven't got accurate statistics on, and I can't vouch for the statistics on Sam Laidlow, who obviously came second, but I've seen Sam reporting on Instagram and in a podcast that he he talked on about taking over two liters an hour on the bike, which hmm. does on the one hand sound really, really high. And if he'd have given me that number just off the cuff with no context, I would say that's unlikely to be correct. But having seen the fact that we've we've got athletes that were taking, you know, over one and a half liters an hour on the bike where we're reasonably confident we can get close to verifying that number then it it suggests that you know pushing the fluid intake high these both leon and sam are athletes that did very very well in the race they both biked very very strongly sam obviously had the has set the record for the bike split and i think leon even with a minute penalty was inside or close to the previous best bike split in kona they both ran well off the bike so when you take all of that in together, the evidence doesn't suggest that consuming that level of fluid for those individuals in those conditions at that intensity was too much. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Um, and one logistical question on that for when you said that Leon, he he consumes concentrated bottles with carbohydrates and electrolytes. Obviously, he's only carrying so much, um, so many bottles from the start of the race but does is he carrying are the bottles concentrated enough that that basically lasts the entire four hours from him and he can just supplement with uh with additional fluid like water or maybe gatorade or whatever is available on course because if you are relying on a certain amount of sodium in your bottles then and 
then sometimes on on the course if you're a heavy sweater i know this from personal experience then you you can't really find something that is the concentration that you would like to or is he perhaps even bringing some of your tablets or or something like that with him on the bike how how, how does he do it logistically yeah i mean it's it's actually in one sense it's relatively clear cut and simple with leon he tends to carry so he'll have two one liter bottles on the bike with both of which contain um a number of energy gels, some water and some pH 1500 electrolyte. So they're extremely concentrated with, with both carbohydrate and, um, and sodium. Then he, and then he'll also have an, a 500 mil bottle with that in as well. So it's, so basically 2.5 liters of capacity with predominantly energy sodium with a little bit of water. And then on top of that, he's largely picking up plain water. So mm. according to our stats, he he picked up around about 4.7 liters of plain water during the race from the aid station. So his routine at the aid station was pretty simple. It was, it was, it was going for water only. And I think mm. with pro athletes, you can, especially those that are riding close to four hours, it becomes easier for them to conceivably do that because they haven't got to carry enough uh, carry enough calories or whatever for five six or even seven hours as some people might be out on the bike for so it's something we're seeing more commonly with the athletes at the front it also is it goes back to the thing that is important for a lot of athletes which is controlling the controllables it allows them to know exactly if they finish those bottles and that as, as you well know and this is true of, of good age group athletes as well they're able to predict their finish time on the bike to within a few minutes normally if things go to plan and therefore working out if you know you've got to hit for example 100 grams of carbohydrate an hour you think you're going to be on the bike for four hours it's very simple you need to carry about 400 grams of carbs we'd always encourage someone to carry a little bit more than what they expect they'll need in case they find themselves needing more and also there's the reality of the fact that if you dump you know, 90 grams of carbohydrate in a gel into a water bowl. And you, do you really expect to like drain that to the absolute bottom and be able to get everything out of it? It's like not always. So we would, we'd usually say, okay, if you want to hit 400, maybe let's take 430, 440 in total to allow sort of 10% for a bit of drift. But increasingly that's the way we're seeing the pro athletes do it and it takes the pressure off them then having to pick up special needs bags or get certain items from aid stations yeah yeah um maybe let's just run through the numbers of uh Fenella language sarah crowley and leon in terms of carbohydrates fluid and sodium intake just to get an overview of of those three um so yeah, uh, yeah. take take it from whichever athlete you want to start with well let's let's start with leon because we've been talking about him. and if we start with all three of them we'll, we'll talk about fluid so leon's fluid per hour was about 1.38 liters per hour on average um Fenella's was about 1.1 liters per hour which given Fenella's body size you know Fenella's only about 55 56 kilograms compared to leon's nearly 70 kilograms 68 kilograms that's that's a pretty high fluid intake but we know that Fenella has a pretty high sweat rate what's interesting then is you look at sarah who's also probably a similar weight to um to Fenella, but but who only had 593 milliliters of fluid per hour so basically half half of what um half of what Fenella took and less than half what leon took but but that for us because we've got a depth of data on those athletes from a number of races now we don't see that as uncharacteristic you know sarah seems to be able to race on significantly less fluid than some other athletes that we're working with she always has and and does that correlate with her just having a low sweat rate uh, in training or or is it uh, or is it like does she sweat half as much as uh, as Fenella for example or is the difference much smaller than that it's a good question and one that I wish I could give you a really accurate answer to but certainly my perception we've got some sweat rate testing data from all of those athletes but it's the nature of sweat rate testing data is that it's very specific to the intensity and the conditions that you do it in so you, you unless you get three athletes and compare them in exactly the same conditions same intensity it's really hard to make a direct comparison but i would certainly say that subjectively yes sarah has a lower sweat rate significantly lower sweat rate than the other two and 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 therefore 
and and has tended that Leon and Fenella are both proving to be adept at racing in hot conditions, but Sarah's got a much longer track record of doing well in hot conditions. And, you know, one question I, I need to talk to the athletes about and start to unpick myself is that, okay, well, you know, we know there's big inter individual differences and you'll never know the, the, the full extent of this, but if Sarah can do this on what, what is close to 600 milliliters of fluid an hour, as you rightly said, Leon took 1.3. Is that is that excessive? How would he have fared at 1.1 litres or 1 litre? I'm pretty confident that at 600 millilitres, he would have been too dehydrated. You know, he's he's. we know from past experience, he's tended to need more fluid than that. But how big is that window that he can tolerate and how close is he to the upper limit versus the lower limit of that is a kind of a question that hopefully we refine over time with more experience yeah yeah um what about uh, sodium intake for these three athletes sodium intake again if i do that in terms of two two things we can do it as relative sodium concentration and absolute and if we start with the absolute con- amounts leon took about 920 milligrams of sodium per hour Fenella took about 1300 milligrams per hour and sarah took just 230 milligrams per hour and and again, there's there's two factors at play there. There's the fact that so if we take we'd expect Sarah to take less sodium significantly than the two for two reasons. One is because her sweat sodium concentration is lower, so she's losing a net amount of sodium less than the the others. But also because she's taking in less fluid, there's less of a requirement to be aggressive with the the fluid the, with the sodium intake because the the ratio of those two is more likely to be imbalanced. You know, a low amount of fluid intake only requires a, a low amount of sodium intake to keep everything in balance. As you scale your fluid intake, you need to scale your, your sodium intake up as well to uh, as it as it um meets a bigger percentage of your total losses. And so both Fenella and Leon are significantly saltier and they've learned to take more sodium as a result. So what's interesting though is when we look at the relative sodium concentrations, Leon was at just under 700 milligrams per litre because of the amount of plain water he drank, whereas Fenella was up at 1,100 milligrams per litre. Sarah was at just under 400 milligrams per litre. So that sort of brings those numbers. It may, it it's a way of pulling the numbers together a bit more because it's related to the amount of fluid they took. Uh, yeah, and and how do those numbers compare to? I'm sure that you have uh, test data for sweat sodium concentration, and the good thing about that is that it's not not very specific to conditions, but more uh, quite stable yeah. as we have talked about before. So uh, what, what are these athletes sweat sodium concentrations when, when you've tested them? So Leon's is, is usually around about 1300 milligrams a liter. Um, Fenella's is usually is very similar actually around 1300 and Sarah's tends to be way, way lower, like around 500. So, hmm. so again, the, the strategy for them is obviously tailored and seems to fit with and fits with their relative with their relative losses the the slight outlier on this example is that if we were if we were designing it we'd have uh, if we were redesigning it we'd have probably looked at leon potentially taking a little bit more in the sense that his um, replacement was about 50% of his losses now it feels like that might you know, he had an ex- excellent result and he and he raced really strongly to the end so one one part of the argument there could be that well he got it about right because I, I believe he did i believe that my my feeling is though that he was probably slightly on the lower side of what was optimal rather than the rather than pushing the upper end of that for him um sarah yes. seems about right for her based on past experience and Fenella was at about she was replacing actually in terms of um, relative concentration, obviously she didn't drink as much as she sweated, but relative concentration, she was almost at one to one, which is quite yeah. high. So, yeah. but but then when you look at the subjective ratings that all of these athletes gave around their sort of hydration and how they felt it went on the day, um, Leon rated his hydration as te- his overall hydration as ten out of ten. He said it, you know, felt like he got it right. Um, Fenella, Fenella said that she rated hers as eight out of ten, 
and she said mainly the dissatisfaction if if the, the if that was creeping in was more to do with apprehension about making some last minute changes because she'd not raced in those conditions before um sarah Sarah said that despite the fact, you know, in, in absolute terms, when you look at it, she only took 600 mils an hour and 400 milligrams per litre of sodium. She said 10 out of 10, she nailed it and felt like she got it her best ever. Hmm. So all, yeah. I, I would I would chalk all three of those up as like successful strategies on, on the day. It's just then a case of, you know, what, what can we learn from them going forward? And is there anything we'd, we'd change in, in same circumstances going into the future yeah but that, that's it's interesting uh, and this is something that i i have seen as well from a coaching perspective that there is a wide range or, or can be a wide range uh between individuals for how much relative sodium concentration you need to to be successful to have a successful hydration strategy with leon being more like 50 percent of of his losses and and then Fenella and uh, and Sarah being much closer to um, well Fenella being maybe eighty percent or so and yeah. and Sarah quite close to to one hundred percent but and and that's but one thing to keep in mind there I would say uh, for the listeners is that Leon's uh, time was under eight hours yeah absolutely. and 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 if you're but if you're an age group and you're doing this race in fourteen hours then every hour you're net or your your absolute net losses are going to be bigger so so even if you might be able to you know half distance race get by with a 50 percent replacement rate then if, if you're out there for longer then there might come a point where you need a higher replacement rate so it's not just about the there there's no one one number but it depends on the duration that you're out there because the i've I, i've found that the absolute losses that you accumulate or a day or whether it's a half distance race or a training day or a full distance race that that also comes into play even though it's hard to quantify like where is that point and it probably varies very much from individual to individual absolutely and i think what what we know as well is that when you isolate a a variable and look at it and try and attribute you know success or otherwise in a race to it it's it's an impossible task because there's so many complex things that are going on in the body that what you can say for sure is that all three of these athletes achieved something very close to their best possible performance on the day. So I, if you, if you zoom out and look at their hydration strategy as an isolated thing, what you, what you have to be able to say from these numbers is that they weren't a million miles off it being, they were in the zone, which allowed them to compete fairly optimally. What their hydration strategy certainly didn't do was, was cause a catastrophic failure or, or compromise their performance. Yeah what about carbohydrate intake carbs was interesting so if i jump back to the the overall stats just really quickly to give you an insight there we saw um that the pros on average and these are all pros obviously consumed about 22 percent more carb per hour than the age groupers that we looked at and the but even with the age groupers the median carb intake across the group was 85 grams per hour which is significantly higher than we would typically see at most Ironman races. Now, the speculation there is obviously you, you can make lots of you you can attack that from a lot of different angles, but it's a championship race where people have qualified. They they are in essence some of the the better athletes. The I think the average finishing time of our cohort met across men and women was close to nine and a half hours. So this is a genuinely pretty elite group of of athletes. And so you'd expect a high level of carbohydrate intake from everything that we understand from the evidence out there is that higher level of carb intake supports a higher level of output. And this, these, these guys and girls are obviously at the highest end of the output, but I was quite impressed with that at 85 grams an hour being an average, um, trying to see if I've got the range to hand. Um, so the lowest carb intake was at 66 grams an hour and the highest was 120 grams an hour across the group so both both of those actually pretty much exist within what you would the broadest range of what you would say would be optimal for that race Mm. you know because like more than 60 grams an hour you'd always expect and we definitely are hearing lots of stories about people doing up to 120 grams or maybe a little bit more per hour so it kind of really covers that that range for the three athletes we're talking about specifically leon was did a solid job at 105 grams an hour 
Fenella did brilliantly at 96 and Sarah was at 70. And again, if I was to characterize that based on previous races, you know, Leon's been working hard over the last 18 months to get his intake up a little bit, but he's always been someone who's pushed a lot of carbohydrate and been able to tolerate it. So 105 is right. I think he's done a bit more in some races and a bit less in others, but that's in the zone. Fenella is definitely someone who's managed to get that intake up significantly um, over time. So 96 grams an hour for her was fantastic and like really, I think, helped to support an aggressive race. You know, she was out front a lot of the day. And if you're going to race out front, you are going to burn more calories. So she was doing that. And again, with Sarah, Sarah did a, a solid job at 70 grams. But but like with her fluid intake, Sarah's always appeared to be someone who can race towards the lower end of the recommendations. And, and so it's unusual to see her taking in significantly more than that and whether whether there's more performance that could be unlocked by doing so is is for debate but i would say probably questionable because with an athlete of sarah's experience and track record you know she's she's very in tune with her body so i think that something in the lower end of that optimal range probably suits her best Mm, yeah and uh across these three variables carbohydrates fluid and sodium uh, did all three athletes that we're talking about here did they pretty much nail what they their plan was before the race or were there any things that differed from from the pre-planned expectations no they were all i would say pretty much in the zone the one that we were less confident about making strong recommendations on for this race were and we we don't like to really make target fluid volumes anyway because they're so variable but we were a little bit unsure which is why we had chats with most of the athletes to say look around the have have an amount of a base amount of fluid and sodium we're trying to get in but then supplement with water as you, as you feel you need to because the good thing at Kona is there's and a lot of these races there's no shortage of water available on the course so they were taking advantage of that and I think that's that was that was where we saw maybe what we'd have done in the future is push Leon's sodium intake up a little bit, knowing now that he's likely to consume a bit more plain water with it. But other than that, I would say that the, 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 all three of them appeared to execute a plan that, that was, you know, really, really strong. The other thing to mention, which we, we often see with these people that, that race really well and are strong to the finish is that they all three of them did a really good job on keeping their calorie intake up deep into the marathon, which as you know, as someone who's raced long races is really, really hard to do, especially if you're struggling, especially when you're getting a bit dehydrated and it's hot and the, the sort of will to keep pushing calories in can deteriorate deep into the race. But we definitely saw these guys, you know, eating and drinking deep into the marathon and there was a lot of action at the back end of the race. You know, Leon went backwards, I think, to ninth at one point, but then came surging through and almost caught Keenley before the line because he was moving forward strongly again in the final mile or so. So mm. that and that's something to that I like to reinforce to age group athletes is that it can be very, very tempting to let your intake taper off as it's especially if you're not having a great race, as you sort of lose lose a bit of will and lose a bit of heart later on but if you can keep your energy and take up it's it's more likely that you'll rally and and have a strong finish yeah um that's a, that leads to me to to a question there did did these athletes have a fairly even intake across the bike and the run or like relatively even or what, what did anybody have a big difference that where they kind of took a lot on on the bike and then the run they still took on carbohydrate but to a lesser rate than they did on the bike how, how did the distribution between bike and run look yeah um that so leon did a pretty typical thing where he front loaded on the bike so he was up at nearly 140 grams an hour on the bike and probably and something around 80 grams an hour on the run which is pretty typical um both for him and you know what we'd expect to see with people being able to front load it um i'm seeing if we if, if i've got to hand the numbers on Fenella. i think i think i'd have to go back and double check but i think that Fenella's was a little bit more even 
across the mm. two. Um, but I'm not entirely sure. I'd have to I'd have to double check that. And I, and again, and with Sarah's, I'd have to dig into the numbers to give you any sort of um, clarity yeah. on that. But I would say with Leon, we know it's a typical um, it's a typical habit for him, and one that we've encouraged with him is to try to get more energy in on the bike to set up a good run, and that's what yeah. he appeared to do. Yeah, yeah, 140 grams an hour for four hours is very impressive. It's solid, yeah. Um, and uh, can you walk us through the process of how these athletes come up with their nutrition and hydration strategy for for Kona or any race reel? Like, what what is the process that they go through? It starts with us when they if they work with us on it, then we try to we try to um, act as advisors and act as a sounding board, but not to dictate. You know, we don't we don't we don't want to be most of these athletes especially if we start working with an athlete who's already a pro or is an aspiring pro an up-and-coming athlete they're clearly doing a lot of things right already so we we like to give them advice on taking what they're currently doing and modifying it to to make it better rather than saying unless we feel that their strategy is is really letting them down then that's the approach we'll take so usually what it is it's to focus on getting them to understand what are the likely numbers that they want to hit. So if we take Leon's case, if he wants to hit 140 grams an hour on the bike and he wants to hit 80 grams an hour on the run, then what we'll do is we'll say, right, you've you've got our product range here. Like, how do you prefer to do that? A great case in point there is that, you know, um, she wasn't racing in Kona, but Emma Pallant-Brown is, is, is just not, she's always said she's just not as big a fan of using gels as using an energy drink or using energy chews. She just doesn't get on well with gels, the texture and that sort of thing. She'll use them at a push, but doesn't really prefer it. So we, we would be silly to give her a plan the same as Leon, where he predominates on taking gels in, in bike bottles on the bike. So the process really is like hone in on what we think the number should be if we're talking carbohydrates and it's usually then it's it's looking at what they're currently doing we'll analyze a couple of races where we've not had some input and we'll say do we feel like that number is good where it is does it need to go up a bit or does it need to come down a bit and then we'll make a suggestion on roughly what that number should be we'll do similar for the run and then and then really we we asked the athlete to come back to us and sort of like present the plan. Here's how I'm going to do it. This is how I've calculated it. I'm going to carry it in these bottles. I'm going to carry this many gels on the run or use these at the aid stations or we'll help them with figuring out what's in the in the products like Gatorade or Morton gels or whatever is available on the course. So if they plan to pick nutrition up, they can do it. But we fundamentally ask them to present the plan to us in some way that could be as a, a voice note or a written thing. Or if you're, some of them are very organized with this, like Leon will t- typically send us a, either a list or a spreadsheet with it on. And then what we'll do is we'll check the maths and check the numbers to make sure that it all adds up. And we'll, we'll, take that and we'll compare it to previous races that that we've got data on that are either in similar conditions or where if we've not got similar conditions where we can extrapolate it up or down based on heat and things like that and then we'll make any advisory comments around whether we feel it's it's good to go or whether things should be done differently so we try and make it a collaborative process led by the athlete rather than us just telling them what to do because I think ultimately you get better long-term learning outcomes if people take responsibility for that. And, and really it boils down to like understanding the numbers, understanding how those numbers might differ for different durations and different conditions, and then moving them up and down. So to, to make that real, you know, as a typical, as a, as a concrete example, Leon came to us before Kona and modeled his plan off what was successful for him at Ironman Mallorca. So it was essentially similar on the carbohydrates with an, a, an upward adjustment on the fluid and sodium because of the expected higher sweat losses. And and that's what you you tend to see athletes do is, you know, once they they feel like they've honed in on something like a successful routine, it's obviously then repeat with small tweaks each time. Yeah. Um, yeah, I was going to get to that with the hydration part. How much do you remember off the top of your head? How, how much did he tweak the hydration intake compared to Mallorca? 
Um, it was just, I think, I don't, I couldn't give you a percentage number. I'd have to go back and actually look at those things, but it would have been a small increase, you know, a small hourly increase in the amount of sodium on the expectation that he was going to pick up more water, basically. Hmm. Um, the, one of the things we want to work on in the future is doing some testing. We've actually been talking to a PhD student that we're helping at um, the University of Bedfordshire who's researching sodium and fluid intake in ultra endurance and one of the questions that we're trying to ask is okay can we take athletes and model what their sweat losses are in a thermo neutral environment say 20 degrees celsius indoors on a bike trainer ramp them up to 30 degrees and high humidity to replicate a tough race in the heat and can we can we do that with enough people to get an idea of is there a kind of scaling factor that we can use to estimate increases in sweat loss that might yeah. help us point to how much more fluid you might need to take so that's something that we're aware that you know we'd like to be better at because not everyone can go and train and compete in the kind of race conditions that they might be exposed to and therefore have to make some guesses and some leaps of faith yeah yeah but just to sum up uh, your answer to that question it's basically uh, you're looking at they 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 based the plan for an upcoming race on what has worked in in a recent race or previous races and like the, all of the experience collected, not necessarily on having a, just grabbing a number, like I should be taking in 120 grams per hour of carbohydrate, or I should be taking in one liter per hour of fluid on the bike, but, but it's, it's tweaking previous based on previous experiences. So is, is that, is that a fair assessment? Absolutely. And that's why we tried, that's why we tried to pre-gather data from an athlete or try to get them to do some recollection with us when we start working with them because we always feel like there's there's a reason why they've done what they've done in the past and we need to unpick what those reasons are and see how successful it's been but evolving evolving a, a currently moderately good strategy into a really good strategy is better than trying to start wipe a slate clean some of the time yeah and let's let's say for next year for Kona, if uh, well, obviously Sarah has raced Kona many many times, uh, but for Leon and Fanella, if they go back there, would you assume that they will maybe base their plan on what worked in Kona this year because it's such a specific climate, rather than what they've done in other Ironman races um, closer to the World Championships next year? Yeah, I would say that that's likely at this point, unless of course you know things things change in in the meantime in terms of if we learn anything you know it, it we know that things like carbohydrate tolerance moves a little bit and you know we wouldn't persist with 140 grams an hour on the bike for leon if he did it in numerous other races and actually found it to be intolerable for example so you've always got to mm -hmm. keep an open mind to modifying things later on but fundamentally yes i think we we and hopefully the athletes feel really confident now in the fact that they've got a really solid good data point from Kona in the bag which then puts them in a more powerful position to be more confident in knowing where they're going to start from next year yeah uh do you have any final take home message for for age groupers that are planning on racing Kona at, at some point that something they should take into consideration for when that time comes with regard to uh, carbohydrates uh, fluid and sodium intake I, I just think it's 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 kind of an obvious statement to say but with the heat and humidity then being exposing yourself to other races or at least some periods of training in even vaguely similar conditions to ex to figure out what you can do with sodium re and fluid replacement is going to be really really important to success we've we've definitely worked with a few athletes there in the past who have exceptionally high sweat rates and or exceptionally high rates of sodium loss who have just consistently struggled in Kona because of the mismatch they can do well in cooler conditions but can't do as well in in really hot conditions and and I think you know starting to uncover whether you're likely to be someone who's going to need extra attention to detail in that space is that's probably one of the biggest variables that differs in that race from any other and so being on top of that in advance and, and getting some experience in those conditions is critical yeah so let's move on to saying three words uh that was a, a very different uh climate very different conditions especially this year with the 
very unusual cold weather uh, conditions that that we had on both race days. Um, first, just any overall observations from your side. You you weren't present personally uh, in in Saint George, but the but uh, yeah, did did you have any any observations that that you got from watching it from afar or from that your team relayed to you about how the different conditions uh, impacted the strategies that the athletes used there? Yeah, Brad from our team who works closely with the, the our ambassador athletes was out there and he one observation that he and I definitely made that was just across the board and even at the pro level, athletes generally, not just nutritionally, but generally weren't well prepared for racing in those cooler conditions, those cold conditions that were close to sort of low single digits in Celsius. And I think we saw that if you watch the coverage and the clothing choices and, you know, even Emma, who we were working closely with, who managed, who got third in the end, you know, she rode the bike ride with one glove on because she couldn't get a glove on in transition. And we saw some really divergent approaches in clothing. Lots of people where, you know, people who who have got multi-thousand dollar kit sponsors stuff wearing bin bags and things like that you know under their under their clothing and stuff and i think that just shows that how inexperienced the sport is in generally dealing with those those conditions um from from a nutrition and hydration perspective the biggest thing it showed up to us was that anyone who has a strategy for that kind of racing where a lot of their calories are going to come from liquid intake was caught out because you just don't want to drink very much. You don't need to drink very much fluid volume in those cold conditions because you're barely sweating. A lot of the athletes were reporting actually essentially not sweating and shivering on the bike, at which point you can't force loads of fluid in. And then if your calories are in your fluid, then you're likely your performance is likely to be impacted because you're not getting the carbohydrates in. So you and I have talked about this loads in the past, but this idea of decoupling your your calorie intake from your fluid intake some of the time is really really important for the it's really important in hot conditions because you might overload the gut with the amount of fluid and carb you want to drink if you've got all of your calories in liquid form and in the in the real cold it's the absolute opposite problem you don't drink enough to meet your calorific needs if you're not eating some of your calories separate to drinking and we certainly saw that with with one or two people a lot of the reports in there are more anecdotal than as having hard data on them we have got numbers on one or two athletes emma in particular um but i think the general feeling was that it's you know in those cold conditions it's harder to drink your calories it's also just harder to eat when you've got cold fingers and wearing gloves and things like that there's multiple factors that that come into play on the bike where people just don't hit their nutrition plan as well as they can yeah um yeah so emma uh emma pellant brown for the listeners that might not be aware uh she was third uh, brilliant brilliant run in particular to uh to run up into into third in the closing stages of the of the race uh you have her numbers can you run through them like you did with uh, the kona athletes yes absolutely so emma's emma uh, in the race so she was racing for four hours and 10 minutes for third place she took in um, 28 grams of carbohydrate per hour on average 288 milliliters of fluid an hour and 740 milligrams per liter of sodium um, so really really apart from the relative sodium concentration which is kind of irrelevant in the sense that in those cold conditions you, you really don't need a lot of fluid and a lot of sodium because the sweat rate is just not there to to warrant yeah. it the numbers are all very down you know, and what we'd expect, like 28 grams of carbohydrate an hour, as you know, is like really, really low. And and was that because she uh, she didn't, did she have issues with opening gels or what, what, what was the reason for that low number? Um, two things. One was that Emma's, part of Emma's, um, even, even in the days leading up to the race, we didn't necessarily expect it to be as cold. And I don't think she did. And therefore she suspected to drink a, a bit of a higher volume of liquid on the bike than she did so she had quite a strong calorific drink mix on the bike which she barely touched and then with the gels she did manage to take a gel on the bike but with the glove with cold fingers and with with the sort of descents and the the shivering she just basically i think found it very very difficult to access and found it difficult to focus on getting the nutrition in so instead made a decision to focus on you know riding as hard as she could 
um, and taking a risk that she would she would be able to sustain a, a decent performance on the run, even though she hadn't got the calories in. Yeah, and I, I think I heard her say, or maybe it was in an Instagram post, that she then got to the run and she just grabbed a lot of cups of sports drink or whatever was available and, and tried to get in some calories quickly uh, on the run. So was this actually a case of she got very little calories in uh, and carbohydrates in on the bike and, and then quite a bit of those of, of the carbohydrates that she got was was on the run so a bit of a, a backloaded strategy which is uncommon but but in this case it just ended up being the case yeah 100 percent. she grabbed a lot of cups of gatorade and stuff like that on the on the run um and basically made up tried to start to make up her calorie deficit by doing that and so the numbers we've got to work out we're still um, working out the this this the exact split based on the number of aid stations and things but it was it appears that the majority of what she took in you know came through those aid stations on the run and which obviously makes total sense because if she only had a little bit of energy drink and some and a gel on the bike then she at least in her mind responded well to that and managed to to get some some carbs in on the run um what what was fascinating for me is that you would never ever advise an athlete to obviously take 28 30 grams of carbohydrate an hour for four hours to in a world championship event or in any event of that intensity but the fact that she was able to really sustain her performance to the end is is really intriguing really interesting because and and probably shows that you know when you've got such a high level of fitness such a high level of motivation because it's such a huge event when other people around you are struggling a bit we definitely saw i think some of the other competitors on the run were were starting to to find it really hard partly due to the conditions that and and when and i think emma did do a fantastic job as she normally does in terms of carb loading before the event she always does she always eats a lot of carbs the day before has a very solid breakfast and gets a gel in in the last 15 minutes before they start she starts all of that combines to to point to the fact that you can produce a very good result sometimes without actually getting the nutrition completely optimal. Yeah, and and I'm just speculating, but maybe because when when I saw her come out of the water really close to the front, much closer than than I would have expected, I thought that all oh, this could be Emma's day yeah. because of her strong bike run. Then on the bike, obviously she didn't really manage to have the day that that she could be capable of, I think, and probably because of the cold. So and and that's something that can happen that you you're really cold on the bike and you just don't manage to push power. But then the the flip side of that is that well maybe she didn't expend so much energy on the bike, so so that helped her uh, limit the losses of not being able to take on so much energy that the bike power was probably quite a bit lower than than it might have been in in different circumstances. Yeah, I think she definitely, I'd agree. Again, it's, it is speculation because I haven't seen her bike power numbers and that kind of thing, but I do feel like that, you know, she, she, yeah, it set her up potentially to run quicker. Plus we know that actually the temperature is coming up on the run. Emma's someone who's had more problems racing in the heat generally than anything else. And so I think cooler conditions, although they were too cold for her and most of the athletes on the bike, on the run, they were very good conditions for her as a runner. And I think that that showed. The other thing that's worth mentioning as well is that Emma's one of those athletes that they're all at that level. These are the top professionals in the world. They're all very, very motivated. They're very strong and determined. But Emma is, in my view, is sort of next level for that. She's She is an unbelievably tenacious athlete and I think that when we all know that phrase about mind over matter and how you can do some pretty incredible things when you really put your mind to it I think this I I do think that this result and the opportunity to get back on the podium after quite a few years away from the podium at 70.3 worlds meant a lot to her and I think that sometimes you can't expect it to happen always but sometimes you can dig really really deep like that and produce a phenomenal result even if other things aren't optimized around you in the same way that we've seen plenty of times athletes have executed a a spot on nutritional strategy but haven't had a good race for numerous other reasons and so yeah it kind of puts in perspective the fact that because some people might say you could use it as evidence to suggest that okay well you don't need to take that much energy and when you're racing and all the rest of it which i still think is ridiculous because the nutrition hydration is one of the strong 
pillars that supports a really good performance but it also puts in perspective where that pillar is as compared with fitness motivation pre-race preparation all of those sort of things they they are all the things that make up the performance puzzle and you can have a good performance even if all the pieces aren't quite in place sometimes you know it's just it's, it's a case of relative weighting of those factors yeah, exactly. Like Emma had a lot of other factors going for her. Like she didn't do Kona, for example. Like somebody like Lucy Charles Barkley had done Kona three weeks prior. So uh, I obviously no, no no clue what what she took or how much she took. She might have had a perfect nutrition hydration day, but she could still feel that fatigue of Kona in her legs. So so yeah, there's always so many factors that go into it that uh, it's it's the combination of everything really that determines your performance. Definitely. Um, but w- I. I yeah, what, what would you say that if you if you could do this exact same or if Emma could do this exact same um, race, the same conditions again, like how would you advise her to to tweak her plan? At, how, how would you advise her to change things, to be able to change things for the conditions, uh, if, if at all? More more gels and chews on the bike and, and a way of making them more accessible with gloves on or with, you know, with cold hands. So we'd have, we, we, sh- we should have, with hindsight, you know, come up with something that, that would have made it easier for her, her to get some solid carbohydrate calories in on the bike, whether that's like using the bigger 90 gram gels we've got with caps taken off or bike valves put on so you can just squeeze them with one hand, whether it's using energy chews that are already unwrapped and sort of like in a little box on the frame or something where, you, where there's very, very little barrier to just picking them up and putting in your mouth and eating them yeah that's that's probably the thing or a very very much like more super concentrated bottle or super concentrated drink that that didn't deliver as much liquid but was very very heavy on carbohydrates would be the would be the type of thing you know a bit a bit like the type of um, approach with concentrated carbohydrate drinks that elite marathon runners are taking because they're often running mm-hmm. in similar low single digit temperatures but wanting to get the calories in while they're moving fast yeah um and uh, another question just this one directed more towards the regular age grouper if if somebody let's say showed up for saint george and expected it to be quite warm which i think would have been reasonable unless you followed the forecast anyway and you prepared already many many weeks your nutrition hydration strategy and you've trained accordingly how how do you then go about when you see a week or five days before the race four days before the race that oh no this is going to be really cold and i need to change my plan what what are the things that you would yeah how, how would you recommend that people take take that change changing weather conditions into account uh, to changing their plan if it's going to be a lot colder than you expected clearly expect to want and need to drink a lot less fluid volume but expect that if you can do it keeping up your carbohydrate intake will be beneficial so either a shift towards more solid calories and gels or more concentrated bottles is going to be is going to be the way to go so just just expecting that you know don't expect to drink anywhere near the fluid volumes that you might expect to drink in hotter or or warmer conditions and also don't plan on forcing yourself to drink high volumes just to get those calories in because that could also that could also backfire yeah yeah and i think the things that you mentioned there before with practical ways of like removing minimizing the barriers of getting those calories in and and the carbohydrates in like removing the caps uh, already before the race putting them in a small box those are important because uh that that can be difficult when you're out on a cold ride and and you're trying to open a gel like it can be it can be really difficult when your fingers are freezing so so i I guess practicing those sorts of things in the days before the race as well making sure that you you get the logistics of it sorted 100 percent. and then the other thing is remember that in the cold very few of us race triathlons in the cold very often. Um, those of us who live in cooler countries will have experienced a lot of bike rides and a lot of runs in cold conditions, but they're not, you're not under the same pressure at the same intensity. And, and the, the psychology of being really, really cold when you're racing is, is something that most of us aren't used to. And it's quite, it's quite difficult to come to terms with when, when you're getting too hot, that is also difficult, but we're kind of more used to that and more geared up for it. And, and I guess in some ways, psychologically, geared up to expect it and deal with it in the cold it can be a real 
it can really sap your morale and it can really sap your determination. And I think recognizing that even if you get cold, you've got to keep pushing, you've got to keep you because it'll help keep your body temperature up and you've got to keep focusing on things like your nutrition. It's, it's really easy for low morale to then reduce your motivation to eat and drink and sort of you can start to feel quite negative about the whole race and experience and whilst that's tricky to negate i think if you go into a cold race understanding that that's something that might happen especially if you you can you can get around that a little bit by getting your clothing choices right but understanding that the cold is going to sap your morale and stealing yourself to deal with that is probably also quite important i would say yeah yeah great point uh do you have any other observations from saint george or general observations from both of these championship races the only other one from saint george really was on emma and her the the low carb intake was her recovery because a lot of the research that's been done on higher carb intakes has looked at it in the context of how it affects recovery and it was notable i think that emma reported that her recovery post-race she said she was a lot more stiff and sore which could be partly attributable to the hills in saint george and partly attributable to the cold but also i think is probably partly attributable to the low carb intake and it's one of those reasons why we'd why we'd say that look you know we always say look training with a low carb intake is likely to be um is likely to be sort of detrimental to performance and recovery especially and i think that that's probably something else that highlights that she dug very deep with very little energy intake there and, and i'm sure that will have impacted her recovery not that it matters so much after a championship race if you're not building up to something again straight away but it's it's probably another another note of caution to anyone who thinks well i, th- I think i think I, I just checked some start list this morning and i think emma is on the start list for um 73 muscle bay i believe it's in, <laughs> in not too long so yeah <laughs> yeah well well she'll have to bounce back <laughs> she'll have to yeah. bounce back more quickly than i thought maybe but um but certainly you know using that as context for anyone who's sort of thinking well you know if you can get by on less energy intake why why would you take more well i'd say you know remembering that recovery is also part of the process and one of the reasons why you might take a little bit more is 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 also important in that context yeah and and i have a a good interview on that topic with uh, some scientific research with uh dr aitor viribai who did a lot of research with uh, on that specific topic and and uh, i'll link to that episode i can't remember the number in the show notes but for listeners that are interested they can go and have a listen to that one but that's that's a great point um yeah anything anything else andy anything new from precision fuel and hydration that you want to mention before we uh sign off no well i suppose that i i touched on it but one exciting new project we've got in the pipeline is that we're um helping to support a phd student at the university of bedfordshire very soon that's that's starting out to look at fluid and sodium ingestion in different environmental conditions for supporting ultra endurance performance and i think that's a three-year project so it's going to take some time for us to learn a, a lot of actionable stuff from it but we've we're really excited about about that um and we will be putting out some for anyone who's based in the uk who's an endurance athlete who's interested we will be putting things out in the future as opportunities to come and take part in research studies there so we'll be looking for triathletes runners and cyclists people that are fit enough to do four and five hour training sessions in a heat chamber at 30 degrees with with varying levels of fluid and sodium ingestion if people get involved in that they'll have the opportunity to have sweat tests done to learn a lot about their physiology they'll usually be vo2 max and lactate tests involved in picking participants so they'll get data back from that so i think watch watch our website and our newsletter on our website you know that you can sign up for on our website for updates on that kind of stuff um, if that if that piques your interest Mm, yeah no that's exciting news uh, definitely and looking forward to following that project um thank you so much andy it was great to chat as always and uh, yeah hope to chat to you again soon definitely yeah take it easy michael i'll chat to you again soon
I hope that you enjoyed that interview. As always, you can find the show notes on scientifictriathlon.com, where I will have links to the case studies that are available on precision fuel and hydration. Uh, They include Leon Chevalier, Fennel Langridge, and Sarah Crowley from Kona. And I think those are the ones that at the moment of recording this anyway are available. But be sure to also follow Precision Fuel Hydration on Instagram or Twitter, because they tend to to post case studies and numbers uh, from athletes uh, there on the social media outlets that they have so if you're interested in this type of content and seeing what the best in the world are doing with regard to nutrition hydration then that's a great way to um to yeah get some get some more information and get some case studies around that we mentioned an interview that I did in the past with uh, Aitor Virbay Morales. I think now he's Dr. Aitor Virbay Morales and uh, about high carbohydrate intake and how that can uh, impact uh, recovery and muscle damage. So I will link to that. That was episode 269. Uh, very well worth a listen. And uh, I want to give a quick update on our two scientific triathlon training camps that we have planned for 2023. The Algarve training camp in January is now sold out, but there are still slots available for our flagship camp in Mallorca at the end of March. So check out all of the information about this camp on our website, scientifictriathlon.com, and email me if you want to learn more or if you want to register. It will be an amazing week of training. Mallorca is uh, just a fantastic place for uh, cycling and for training. Uh, There are some stunning climbs, stunning landscapes and views and uh, great roads so don't miss this opportunity to come and train with a bunch of like-minded people and build some great great fitness ahead of your 2023 season Finally, big thanks to our sponsors, Precision Fuel and Hydration, that you can find on precisionfuelandhydration.com. Remember to take advantage of their Black Friday campaign with 20% off everything in store between the 24th of November until midnight on Cyber Monday. No code is required. The discount is automatically applied site-wide on precisionfuelandhydration.com. Of course, this means that you won't, your, uh, that triathlon show code won't be tracked, but if you want to, feel free to send them an email telling them that you came from that triathlon show that always helps and thank you to roca that you can find on roca.com check out their wetsuits dry suits swimskins goggles and exceptional sunglasses and prescription glasses for everything from day-to-day wear to extreme action sports use the promo code that you can get on roca.com forward slash tts to get 20 percent off your entire roca order thank you as always for listening keep training smart and keep loving triathlon <laughs>